Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Psalm 119, verses 73 through 80. Uh, The psalmist uh, writes, you made me, you created me. Now give me the sense to follow your commands. May all who fear you find in me a cause for joy. For I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your regulations are fair You disciplined me because I needed it. Now let your unfailing love comfort me just as you promised me your servant. Surround me with your tender mercies so I may live for your instructions are my delight. Bring disgrace upon the arrogant, uh, the arrogant people who lied about me. Meanwhile, I will concentrate on your commands. Let me be united with all who fear you, with those who know your loss. May I be blameless in keeping your decrees, then I will never be ashamed. Word of the Lord, be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Even Psalm 119, a word about his word. Oh, come on, that was an insider Christian joke. Somebody got that, right? If you didn't get it, take about 30 minutes today and go read Psalm 119, and you will need 30 minutes. Um, Okay, so in his book, Blue Parakeet, Scott McKnight, New Testament professor, uh, talks about how at the beginning of his Jesus class every year with his students, he gives them a test. The test has two parts. Part one is about Jesus. And on that part of the test, he asks his students questions about what they think Jesus is like. So here are just a few of the samples of the 24 questions. He says, you know, is Jesus moody? Uh, is, Jesus moody? is Jesus talkative? Would being in debt worry him? Does he think marriage is like old fashioned and should be done away with? Does he prefer to go his own way rather than act by the rules? Is he an introvert or an extrovert? And so on and so forth. Now, uh, after they answer those 24 questions, then he gives them another set of questions, part two of the test. Basically, they're the same questions that he just asked, tweaked a little bit, but this time he asks them about themselves. Part one, what is Jesus like? Part two, what are you like? And the results that he finds every single semester are not all that surprising to me. You know what he finds? Every semester he finds that everyone thinks Jesus is just like them. And imagine that. The traits that they attribute with themselves are the traits they attribute to Jesus. The beliefs that they hold are the beliefs that certainly Jesus holds. And we see this played out today all the time. So we live right now in a cultural moment that's, that's kind of... Uh, anti-traditional, anti-authoritarian. And the Bible is literally the quintessential example of a traditional authority, right? So people are pushing back on it. 
You know, they feel okay with disagreeing with it or they feel okay with, uh, you know, sort of saying, well, you know, that's not, that's not how it should be. Or just kind of completely reforming what the scriptures have said and how the church has traditionally understood it in order to fit where they're at. Now, uh, the Wesleyans have an interesting way of how they digest all this stuff. I've shared this with you before. I wanna share it with you again because I just think it's really just keen insight here. So the Wesleyans have, uh, have had this, they call it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's this way of understanding and discerning God's will in any moment. Basically, they say you need to consider uh, four different things. Okay? You need to consider your experience. You need to consider uh, your reason, like your intellect. You need to consider church history, the saints, the spiritual fathers and mothers who have come before us. And uh, you also need to consider God's word. Now, today in our cultural moment, I've put them in this order for a reason. Uh, I have found that, let's see here, your left. Yeah. I found that the left-hand column there is the way that our culture operates in that order. What we tend to do if we wanna discern God's will on something is we start with our lived experience or the lived experience of our friends, people who are close to us. Then we reason based on that. Then we use our experience and our reason therein to critique church history, to critique the saints that have come before us. Usually it sounds like church hate. The church got this wrong and that's why the church is so bad. And then what we do is we then take our lived experience and our reason and we import it onto scripture. Basically bringing scripture under the authority of our lived experience of our reason. You ever seen this go down before? I guarantee you that when I just asked that question, you were like, yeah, I know those people who do that. But you do it too. You do. You have blind spots as well. Now, the big problem with this, as we already see, is, because, is, that, is that we're bringing the Bible under our authority. So back to our slide here. What the church has, has done literally for 2,000 years now, it's literally reversed the order. When we're trying to discern God's will, we start with his word. Then we read that in conversation with church history, with the saints, the spiritual mothers and fathers who come before us, which by the way, there's really no new issues under the sun. Whatever you're dealing with, some theologian, some spiritual father or mother in some generation has dealt with it probably in a more intense way than you have. Then after we do that, we reason and we bring our lived experience under the authority of God's word. It actually serves to bring our lives under, uh, under an authority far bigger than us, God, and also under an authority that's far more multicultural, more multi-generational, and weathered than us, the historic church. Now, when we bring uh, when we bring the Bible or we bring church history, though, underneath the authority of our own experience, what ends up happening is it has to bend the knee to us. And I find that to be very, very problematic. So back to McKnight here. This is what McKnight says. He says, the test results suggest that even though we like to think we're becoming more like Jesus, for most of us, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. Or in the words of French philosopher Voltaire, 18th century here, he says, uh, if God has made us in his image, well, we have returned him the favor. 
Now, Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher, also a Catholic, brilliant mind. You may hear me refer to him a lot because I just think he has a good grip on what's happening in our culture right now. He says that this move towards delegitimizing the Bible or sort of reforming it, making it fit us, is part of a larger cultural trend where we see our culture is just kind of anti-authority, anti-institution, anti-tradition about everything. Taylor suggests that right now we're in the process of moving from the age of authority to the age of authenticity. That's how he frames it up. What do you mean, Tyler? Well, basically, we have transitioned away from external authority to internal authenticity in order to figure out Literally everything, all of the big questions of life, like the identity question, who are you? We don't look to external authorities. It's not outside in. The way we discern that is inside out. Or morality, what ought, what ought you be doing? We don't look to external authorities. It's inside out, make your own truth. Or, or how about theology? Like what is God's will? What is of God? We don't actually look to God. We look to our lived experience and our own reason first and then import it on him. You see, now this creates tremendous amount of friction for Christianity. And you know why? Because we are not an inside-out faith. We've always thought we get our identity in Christ first, who is outside of us. We get our morality from the sacred texts, the scripture, which are outside of us. We get our theology, I don't know, from God, not our vision of him. And that's incredibly difficult for folks in this cultural moment. These are all external authorities, though, that we submit our feelings, our desires, our minds, our bodies, our gifts, our strengths, our dispositions, our wealth, our influence, our time, our power, our money, our politics, our everything to. That's the way. Or, or said in a bit different terms, Psalm 119, verse 73, the psalmist says, God, you made me. God, you created me. Now give me the sense to follow your commands. Maybe that should be our life verse in this cultural moment. Now, uh, it's interesting. I wanna, uh, I wanna do a little cultural analysis with you real quick, okay? Because this is just in the water, all right? And I want you to see how this is just in the water. I love doing this in sermons. The reason why I love doing this in sermons is because you have to get good at this, Christians. We have to get good at looking at culture at looking at cultural artifacts or looking at media or, uh, or looking at the messages and some of the propaganda that's constantly put in front of us and being able to look at it with the discerning eye. Okay, I can't get too far off track here, but, but here, this is honestly what I believe. I believe that Christians, when it comes to culture, have one of two, uh, one of two natural responses. Okay? One, when culture rubs against Christianity, we'll see a lot of times Christians withdraw. They'll sequester themselves. They'll create their own Christian subculture and just say to hell with them, literally. Or on the flip side, rather than withdraw, we'll see Christians go the other way and they'll compromise. And they'll embrace what I would call majority morality in order to better fit in. Either one kind of relieves the tension. And so that's why we see Christians gravitate towards either one. But the better, more biblical approach is not withdrawal and it's not compromise. It's being a people who are in, not of the world. In, not of. You ever heard that before in church? We're to be in, not of. So we're to be in non-Christian spaces or in our case, in a country that's not necessarily Christian, but not of it. 
While we live in non-Christian spaces, we should be able to discern the, the media, again, the messaging, the things that are being put in front of us. And we should be able to celebrate and cheer on the aspects of it that go to the glory of God and represent his truth. And we should also be able to criticize that which is not good and which is not godly. So I wanna practice that right now with you by looking at a cultural artifact and doing just a bit of cultural analysis on how this plays out. May I present to you a great piece of film known as Moana. <laughs> Love Moana. For the record, if you're noticing a disproportionate amount of Disney illusions in my sermons over the last couple years of my life, it's just the season we're in, okay? It's just the season we're in, so just bear with us. Um, who's seen Moana, by the way? Okay, so most of us are on the same page, that's great. Uh, for what it's worth, I'm gonna be hard on, on an aspect, a message, one of the messages of Moana here in just a second. I want you to know, I love the movie. It's a favorite in the McKenzie household. We've watched it several times. I think it's one of the top five Disney soundtracks of all time, hot take for you. But one of the main points of discipleship that this movie tries to form you into is this, the voice inside of you is truer and more authentic than any of the voices outside of you. Now you can see this in the main songs. Okay, I'm gonna show you one. I'd pulled several examples, we just don't have time. I'm gonna show you one. Okay. It's the song, Where You Are. It's one of, I think, the two theme songs of the, you know, remember the coconut, the trunks and the leaves. You know what I'm talking about? You know the song? <laughs> the island gives us what we need. Okay, it's gonna be in your head all day. So, so here you go. It's sung where you are. And basically what's happening is, is like Moana is uh, it's the beginning of the movie, it's near the beginning of the movie, and she's receiving coaching and mentorship in the first part of the song from her father and the village. Basically they're telling her, Moana, you're gonna be the chief someday. And so what we need you to do is we need you to lay down your personal desires and ambitions for the good of the community. So this is what her... Uh, her father says to her, says, uh, Moana, I'm not gonna sing it. <laughs> Moana, uh, stay on the ground now. Like, don't go to sea, stay on the ground now. Our people will need a chief, and there you are. There comes a day when you're gonna look around and realize happiness is where you are. We're safe and we're well provided. And when we look to the future, there you are. You'll be okay in time. You'll learn just as I did. You must find happiness right where you are. Now that's the first half. The second half of the song, we see a different character start to sing, uh, the grandmother. And if you know the movie, the granny serves the role of like prophetess in the movie. She's the sage, she's Moana's spiritual mentor. Like literally in the movie, she becomes uh, some sort of spirit stingray, right? And like guides Moana on her journey to exercise the demons of traditionalism, right? But anyway, so uh, that's another part of the story. So here, here's what granny, says to her, uh, Granny says, I like to dance with the water, the undertow and the waves. The water is mischievous. I like how it misbehaves. She's like punk rock, right? Um, so the village may think I'm crazy or say that I drift too far, but once you know what you like, well, there you are. You are your father's daughter, stubbornness and pride. Mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And if the voice starts to whisper to follow the fallen star, Moana, that voice inside is who you are. 
Now, can it be any more explicit? Who are you? Who are you? The voice inside. Like the granny's whole bit here is a critique on Eastern traditional communalistic cultures. Basically saying that individualism is better. And I just wonder how these Polynesian cultures, which to this day place a high priority on family, community, and tradition, I wonder how they feel about Disney co-opting their culture in order to preach a Western individualistic gospel. Maybe not good. Now again, I don't want to be one of those preachers like, Disney, movies, bad, don't want, I'm for Moana. There's great themes in the movie as well. Like we see Maui realize what a true hero is. We see uh, Moana sacrifice self in many incredible ways for the good of her tribe and her community. So there's good parts too, but we have to be discerning about both. Following the voice inside is what will save our traditional communalistic, tribal, aging, fearful parents. That's part of it. And I'm just not sure how that jives with Psalm 119, 73. God, you made me. God, you created me. Now give me the sense to follow your commands. Now, uh, one of our values here at Northeast, as far as I know, this has been a, a core value of Northeast since its founding, is faithfulness to the truth or biblical authority, we might call it. Basically, we believe uh, that our sacred texts, this library of 66 books called the Bible, uh, is inspired by God, written by humans, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And uh, it represents the story of Jesus. We see Jesus' story starting in Genesis all the way through Revelation. And so it's authoritative over our lives. We bring our lives underneath, or underneath right, the authority of this book. You made me, you created me, give me the sense to follow your commands. That's our life posture. So look, that being said, I just wanna give you a bit of advice in our cultural moment, loving exhortation. If you're not a part of Northeast, you can ignore this part. Get on Twitter, it's fine. But if you are, I would encourage you in this way. Um, Stop making Jesus a, a Democrat. Stop making Jesus a MAGA supporter. Stop making Jesus an American, for that matter. Stop making Jesus a self-help guru or a soft prosperity preacher. Stop trying to make Jesus a free market capitalist or a socialist. Stop trying to make him a millennial or a boomer or an exer or whatever, right? Just let, let God disagree with you. Just let, he does. You know that, right? God disagrees with you. Okay, so I'm seeing some surprised faces in here. Let's say that again. On several points, more than you probably would ever expect, God dis- he disagrees with me. He disagrees with you as well. The goal of the Christian life is actually to humbly discover where he disagrees with us and then bring our lives in alignment with that. It's called repentance. And repentance can sound like a dirty word because you've heard it pronounced repent. (laughs) Repent. It's like a three-syllable word. Repent. I don't even know how many syllables. It gets scary when people say it like that, right? But it's actually beautiful when you see it in the context of Scripture. 
You know, I had a, I heard a New, New, New Testament professor say once um, to his students, uh, he says, uh, he said, 20% of the stuff that I teach you is, is wrong. Problem is, I don't know what 20% it is. I love that humble posture. And if this guy gets 20% wrong, y'all in a lot of trouble with me. I'm just saying. But I love the heart behind that. Now, it is becoming increasingly popular today to look at God's word. And if something is offensive, we just say, well, that didn't apply. It didn't apply to us any, anymore. We've moved beyond that. Or I disagree with that now. Basically, anything that doesn't match our cultural sensibilities, our political allegiances, or our lived experience, we just say, that can't be God's will. I know. I see this approach as incredibly egotistical. Like, let me ask you a question. If the Bible really is God's word, should it not offend all of us at some level? Shouldn't it? Like, if it's God's word. Shouldn't it? Shouldn't it offend like every family system? Shouldn't it offend every government, every political party? Shouldn't it offend every ideology or philosophy or theology? Should it, shouldn't it offend every individual in this room? Because all of us are marred indelibly by sin. Can't get away from it. Everything that we create is artificial, which means it's marred by the sin that we're marred with. So shouldn't all of our thought systems Shouldn't all of our communities come under the conviction of God's word at some point? Shouldn't every once in a while, at least, we just read this book and say, wow, my life doesn't align. I wonder why. I wonder if I should, I don't know, do something about that. It'd be a very bad sign for me if the Bible didn't, uh, like, offend every human. Like, if the Bible never offended Republicans, if the Bible never offended Canadians, the Bible never offended, you know, white people or uh, women or socialists. Take your choice. If it never, it would say, that would be concerning to me because I would think to myself, this sounds like a very human book rather than a transcendent one created by the God over us all. So Psalm 119, you made me, you created me. God, our prayer today is to give us the sense to follow your commands, not make up our own. Now, uh, Larry Hurtado was absolute giant in New Testament studies, theology, literature. He was actually at the University of Edinburgh for a long time, passed away in 2019, wrote this book in 2016. I read it in 19, uh, the, the year that he died. It's a book called Destroyer of the Gods. I'm not actually recommending this book because it is historical drudgery. Now, if you're into that, if you're into this sort of punishment, self-flagellation like I am, then read it because it's great. But if you're not, then you don't want, you don't want to go there. Um, but uh, in the book, Destroyer of the Gods, you can hear it in the title, he makes uh, a historical case for how Christianity destroyed the Roman pantheon of gods and totally upended the Roman Empire. Here's how the book is summarized on the flap. I love it. Silly. Stupid, irrational, simple, wicked, hateful, obstinate, antisocial, extravagant, perverse. The Roman world rendered harsh judgments upon early Christianity. Like these were the things the Christians were called, including branding Christianity new. 
Christianity's novelty was no badge of honor. Called atheists and suspected of political subversion, Christians earned Roman disdain and suspicion. Yet, as destroyer of the gods demonstrates in an irony of history, the very features of early Christianity that rendered it uh, distinctive and objectionable in the eyes of the Romans have now become so commonplace in Western culture as to go unnoticed. Christianity helped destroy one world and create another. Now, uh, in the book, he goes on to lay out several Christian distinctives that, uh, that were unique to the Christian social project in those first few centuries. I want list, to list off to you five key behaviors here that I found very interesting. And I can promise you this as I list these off, at least one, probably two are gonna offend you. So take a deep breath. Take it up with the early church, okay? This is their stuff. Uh, first, multi-ethnic diversity. This marked the early Christian church. What we might today call uh, anti-segregation or anti-racism or anti-prejudice, immigrant care, hospitality to the stranger, love for the enemy, what we might call racial and ethnic reconciliation. Basically, if you read Paul's letters, what you see him dealing with most of the time is just trying to get Jews and Gentiles to eat and worship together. The first church council, the Jerusalem council, was over what? Jews and Gentile issues, okay? Go read it for yourself, Acts 15. Uh, next. Next key behavior that was a part of the early Christian social project that set them apart from the Roman world was economic justice and inclusion, or basically preferential treatment for the poor, social concern for the poor, loving the least of these, the hungry, the, the thirsty, the, the naked, the foreigner, the prisoner, the sick, all of Jesus's Matthew 25 categories. Uh, James, Jesus' brother, says true religion is caring for orphans and widows. Acts 2 tells us that they shared everything that they had. Acts 4 tells us that there were no poor people among the community. Amazing. Third, uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. Key distinctive for them. This was not a, a movement that was vengeful or vindictive. Cancel culture was not in their code. If the early Christians were around today, I'm not sure how they would interact on social media. They were not fueled by rage. They were not engaged in culture wars. They were not constantly victimizing themselves and calling everyone else either hateful or an enemy of the state. They were conciliatory. We leave vengeance in the hands of God. Like basically if you killed a Christian, they didn't kill you back. They died forgiving you. Self-defense and self-preservation were not in their code. They prayed for Nero. Think about that. Fourth, uh, the sanctity of human life. Talked briefly about this last week, but we see as early as the first century in Christian documents like the Didache, like the Epistle of Barnabas, which by the way, almost made it in the New Testament canon, which is another Bible study, right? But in these early documents, first century, we see Christian communities resisted infanticide. They resisted exposing, uh, exposure of newborns. They resisted abortion. They basically would adopt the pagans' uh, babies that they were ready to dispose of into their communities. Fifth, fifth distinctive was their sexual counterculture. Basically, they emphasized sexual responsibility over sexual liberty. They understood sex is powerful, that God's restrictions were purposeful and important. So they had highly restrictive boundaries on where intercourse and intimacy belong. 
It was not something you had with adolescents or prostitutes. It was not something you had with multiple partners. And this was going on all over the place in the Roman Empire during that day. It was not something that could be coercive. It was always consensual. There was, uh, there was not a double standard where men got to do more than women, which was the case back then. It was highly restrictive, monogamous, lifelong, opposite gender, loving covenant. This was the way of the early church. And this was in a culture that had even less boundaries than we do today. The logic of the Christian community then was that their boundaries honored God and his creation intent and also protected the family unit, which is the backbone of communal flourishing. Now, can you put them back up there again real quick? Because I just want to show you something, all right? If you look at these five, uh, they were category defying then. And they may be even more category defying today. Because the first two sound like the left, the last two sound like the right, and the middle one doesn't sound like either. I've just found that there are so few Christians today that are willing to defy the categories, you know? Um, like my, my friends who are on the left, they are all about preaching one or two and revising four and five and ignoring three. My Christian friends on the right are all about culture warring around four and five and revising or ignoring or demonizing those who embrace one and two and Ignoring number three. So I would just encourage you, if that's you in our congregation today, I would just lovingly encourage you. You need to come under the authority of the whole council of God's word. Submit to the kingdom, even where it's offensive. Let the Bible be inspired and authoritative over your life. See how that shakes out for us in this empire, in this day and age. And also for those of you who are new, welcome to Northeast where we say stuff like this every week. Um, <laughs> equal opportunity offenders. <clears throat> and back to our original point. Look, so many folks in our culture want to dismiss God or deny the Bible because it disagrees with them on some point. Look, I, just, I would just say, you aren't God. I'm not, we're not God. We're not. Thank God you are not God. And I am not God. We do a grand job of making a mess of our own lives all by ourselves. We don't need other people's lives involved, right? As soon as you become a parent, you realize, okay, so the goal of parent is, parenting is actually just to mess them up as little as possible, to make sure they inherit as little as possible from my sinful family tree. So there you go. All right, now let me get practical here to close. This sermon's all about, you know, the Bible's inspired, it's authoritative. Let's bring ourselves under the authority of God's word, all that. Um, well, look, uh, to, to live God's word, you got to know it. You got to read it. You need to engage with it regularly over the course of a lifetime. And the problem is, is that if the statistics are correct. People in our country, even in our church, don't know it. So the uh, Center of Biblical Engagement compiled a study. They polled 40,000 people. 40,000 people, ages eight to 80. It's a big study. And in the study, they were just looking for how people engage with scripture. But they found an insight that they did not expect that I think 
is really honestly incredible. They found that people who engage scripture once a week, which could include in a sermon, like coming in and listening to a sermon preached on, on the Bible, um, people who engage in scripture once a week has a negligible effect on their life. People who engage twice a week, negligible effect. Doesn't really add much positive value. People who engage in scripture three times a week, it helps them a little. They said it's like a faint heart, a faint pulse. But when people go from three to four, they call it literally the power of four. When people engage in scripture four times a week or more, the statistics literally jump off the page. It goes from negligible to undeniable. Feelings of loneliness drop 30%. Four times a week or more. Anger issues drop 32%, four times a week or more. Bitterness in relationships drop 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. Wow. And discipling others jumps 230%. The results are incredible. Now, the hard truth is that while scripture still to this day proves to be incredibly powerful in shaping our lives, public trust and biblical literacy continues to plummet. Pew Research did a study in 2020 uh, that showed that 23% of Americans didn't read a single book. And you had a lot of time that year, America. So like apparently there's just a literacy problem in general. For what it's worth, the biblical engagement study did not discriminate against listening to the Bible or reading the Bible. You can listen to it four times a week, the effects are similar. Pew also found 64% of evangelicals only read their Bible once a week or less. Wow, now not at Northeast, right? Not at Northeast, well, a few weeks ago we did a, a congregational survey, y'all remember? Two parts to it. There's a demographic part. There's a discipleship part. We got some amazing data back from that. I'm not gonna review it all with you today, just what's relevant to this sermon. First, uh, graphic number one there you can see. Um, it, uh, it asks how confident are you living for Jesus at your workplace? And this is incredibly encouraging, y'all. Check this out. 70% of our congregation rates out at either a four or five in terms of your confidence taking Jesus to work. That's incredible. Only what, 6% of our congregation said they weren't confident. That makes me so proud and so happy as a pastor. I think we're doing something right together. Next graphic here. Uh, how confident are you in discipling your kids? Again, what's this, 18 plus 38 plus 54. About 55% of our congregation says you are very confident in discipling your kids. Only 13% say they're not confident. That's a good thing. The next generation, by the, world, by the way, uh, is gonna change the world. Only question is how. And parents hold the formative clay of their hearts and minds in their hands. You are the chief pastors, the chief disciplers of your children. Very encouraging. Uh, next slide here, very encouraging. If the statistics are correct, well, let's see here. So 80%, so... 82% of our congregation shared Jesus with at least one person over the last year. 82%. Now, I want to give you a round of applause. No, I'm giving you. You don't clap. I clap for you, okay? I am so proud of that. Like, that makes me. Put it back up there, okay? I don't only see me. Like, no, check this out. 
Unreal. 23% apparently share Jesus six times or more. Now don't be annoying. Okay, don't pander. We always walk the walk. We're ready to talk the talk when the opportunity's right. All right, don't be one of those people who every day walks into work, drops your Bible as loud as you, loud as you can on your desk, you know. Do you know where you're going when you're di you die? Don't do that, but I love that. I love that you have an evangelistic heart. Now, uh, good news having been shared. Also got another graphic. Because this is where it starts to turn. According to this graphic, only about one-third of our congregation is confident with your Bible knowledge. One-third. Um, about 43% of people are in limbo. So I would assume that probably means maybe you grew up in a Christian home or a Christian context, but you're just not real sure uh, about Scripture. And 23% of our congregation isn't all that confident at all. The next slide is even more concerning. 12% um, of our congregation uh, has no quiet time routine. 21% say that it's rare. 11% say once a week. About one-third say they, uh, they, they engage with Scripture in quiet time about a third, uh, or about a third, a few times a week, excuse me. And only 22% of our, our people engage with the Bible every day. 22%. Now, um, I don't want to guilt you. Like, that's not the point of this. I'm not trying to say, so shame on you. Now let's pray and go home. Read your Bibles. That's not, I'm not, no. What I want to do is I want to bring this to your attention and hope that you come under the loving conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because, okay, we're in a series called Next Steps right now, right? We've been in this for five weeks. We're asking you to like volunteer and to give and to, to do all the things. And go to Northeast Basics, learn about our church, get more involved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But apparently, if we wanted to ask you to just do one thing, we should just ask you to engage with Scripture four times a week. Because if we get people to do that, everything else will take care of itself. So to close this series out today, that's, that's my big request. My big challenge for you as we walk out of this series. Make your next step deeper, more consistent engagement with God's word. Believing in your heart that is inspired by the Holy Spirit and that we come under its authority. I'll take a group of people who engage in that four times a week any day. Now we have some resources uh, for you. Tomorrow I mentioned them earlier. Uh, if you go to necchurch.org slash resources. So basically our website slash resources, write that down, slash resources. There's lots of stuff there for you to find. We're doing something special today. We're releasing two new Northeast original classes. All right, um, actually, can you roll the, the film on that? So we, you can kind of sit here. It's gonna be uh, located on a teachable website, which is basically a website that you can do an online course. You get on there, you can find the two courses. One's on following Jesus, one's on unhurried rhythms. Come to back, back uh, to that in a second. You can see what the course is all about. Again, it's original to us, so I'm teaching the following Jesus one. And then eight, sec eight sections. 15 minute video with some uh, you know, work, uh, workbook type stuff or discussion guide type stuff to go along with it. You can do it with your small group, you can do it on your own, you can do it with your spouse, whatever probably be about a, a 30 minute investment over the course of the day if you're going to do workbook and and teaching now we're releasing two courses i want to be clear two courses one is a reboot of the sermon series we did at the beginning of this year called unhurried rhythms that teaches you how to have a quiet time 
how to build a rule of life for yourself. It's rebooted in a course format. I would encourage you to check it out. The other one is called Following Jesus. You're seeing it on the screen behind you right now. Basically, I went into our, our studio room and they turn on the camera for two hours and I taught. This is not like low, lowest common denominator here, okay? This is a little bit deeper teaching. I taught for two hours on what the gospel say it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We'd love for everyone to start there in your biblical engagement. Two hours chopped up in 15 minute chunks, eight sessions. I'm encouraging you, do it on your own, do it with, even better, do it with a friend, do it with your group. Engage in scripture in a more deep way. I'll close with a story. Uh, this is a picture of William Tyndale. I don't know if you've ever heard of Tyndale before, but if you have an English Bible, thank him, because he died for you. He died to produce it. So Tyndale uh, was raised on, an, on a farm in England, and when his parents realized how smart he was, about the age of 12, they, uh, they sent him off to school. He went through Oxford and Cambridge, um, learned seven different languages. All the biblical languages were part of that. And uh, he got his first post as a tutor at an English estate, the Little Sodbury Manor. Think Downton Abbey, right? Like this is where he was, he was working in the 16th century. Now, um, one of the big pet peeves that, that Tyndale had with culture at the time was that uh, when he went to church in England, the Bible was only read in Latin. It was, led, it was read from the Latin Vulgate. So you had to be highly educated to actually read the Bible or understand what was being read to you when you were at service, which means that the common folk had no access to the Bible. What frustrated Tyndale even more uh, was that this created uh, a middleman between the people and God known as the priest or the clergy. And these men were not good people in England during this time. Many of them were, not all of them, many of them were drunkards. Many of them would, their stories told of how they would sneak women into the abbeys. I, I can tell you some stories about the Cardinal of England during that time that would make you go, whoa, that guy led the church of that nation? Yeah. So basically Tyndale didn't like the fact that these leaders didn't live the Bible. Apparently they didn't read the Bible and they certainly didn't share the Bible with the common folks. So one night he's at the dinner table at the estate. There are some nobles who have come over. There are some powerful clergy who are there. And over a dinner discussion, they're talking about King Henry VIII's divorce with uh, Queen Catherine. Have you heard of this? It's basically uh, Queen Catherine couldn't give Henry a male heir. And so he requested to divorce her to the Pope. And the Pope told him no. So they're discussing the morality of it. And this abbot who was at the table that night with a big gold chain, very elegant, looked over at Tyndale and he said, well, you're a learned scholar, what do you think, Tyndale? And Tyndale said, it's not about what I think, it's about what the scriptures say. What do the scriptures say, abbot? Well, the abbot's face grew red because he didn't know. And he responded back, well, I, I, the, the Pope says, and Tyndale cut him off, he said, no, no, not, not what the Pope says, I don't know what the Pope says. What do the scriptures say about divorce and marriage? Again, the abbot kind of got flustered and finally pointed his finger at Tyndale and he said, I will not have some country priest lecture me. And this is what Tyndale said back to him. He said, you don't know because you don't read the Bible. And the people can't read the Bible because it's read to them in Latin. And then he pointed his finger 
back at the abbot. And this is what he said. He said to him, if God spares my life, before many years pass, I will help the boy behind the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. What a life vision. And that is exactly what he did. He went on to translate the Bible into English. They wouldn't let him. The Church of England denied. It was, it was punishable by death in England at that time. So he went to Germany. He finished the Tyndale translation, English translation of the Bible, made 15,000 copies and sent them back, smuggled them into England, sometimes at the bottom of flour barrels. They sold like hotcakes. They continued to print more and more and more. Finally, the word of God was being put into the hands of the common folks. And this made Tyndale an outlaw. Eventually, he was betrayed by a friend, arrested, thrown into prison, condemned a heretic, strangled and burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Think about that. And yet Tyndale's dying words were this, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And apparently, God answered his prayer. Because using Tyndale's work, Miles Coverdale published the first ever complete Bible in English. King Henry VIII gave it a stamp of approval. And by 1539, three years after Tyndale died, every parish church in England was required to make English copies available to the people. Once they got the word of God in their hands, they couldn't stop it. Praise God for it. And to this day, I hope you know there's this whole underworld of translation work out there for unreached people groups who don't have the Bible in their language. It's happening as we speak. People are dying in order to get the Bible in others' hands. What a noble thing to give your life to. Why? Why would somebody do it? I'll tell you why. Because we know that this story is more than just a story. History has proven that the truth in its pages has power. The sort of power to conquer death, the sort of power to explain history and the human experience therein, the sort of power to upend empires, the sort of power to create a community of truth and love that transcends every civilization and enriches every generation it finds itself in, and the sort of power to change your life today and every day forward until the day that you die. And you, know, you wanna know why? Jesus is why. It's because Jesus is at the center of it. So I pray you'll make Jesus and his story the center of your life. Or I pray this, Psalm 119, verse 73. God, you made us. God, you created us. Now give this church the sense to follow your commands. Amen.